Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I am your host, Anna Fishson, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Bruce Fink about Volume 2 of his latest book, Against Understanding Cases and Commentary in a Lacanian Key, published by Rutledge in 2014. So about a month and a half ago, uh, we had Bruce on to discuss Volume 1 of Against Understanding, and it's, it's great to have him back on the show. Uh, Bruce, welcome back. Thank you, and it's great to be back. Thanks. So, um, I'll uh, for those who have not listened to the first interview, um, I'll introduce him again. Uh, Bruce Fink is a practicing Lacanian psychoanalyst and analytic supervisor. He trained in France for seven years and is now a member of the École de la Cause Freudienne in Paris. Bruce obtained his PhD from the Department of Psychoanalysis at the University of Paris 8, Saint-Denis, and served as professor of psychology from 1993 to 2013 at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. He is currently an affiliated member of the Pittsburgh Psychoanalytic Center. Bruce is the author of six books, uh, six other books on Lacan, translated into many different languages, uh, The Lacanian Subject, Between Language and Jouissance, uh, Princeton, from Princeton in 1995, A Clinical Introduction to Lacanian Psychoanalysis Theory and Technique, from Harvard, 1997, Lacan to the Letter, Reading a Creed Closely, uh, from Minnesota, 2004, and Fundamentals of Psychoanalytic Technique, a Lacanian Approach for Practitioners by Norton, 2007. He's also translated several works uh, by Lacan, including a Creed, the first complete edition in English, published by Norton in 2006, for which he received the 2007 Nonfiction Translation Prize from the French-American Foundation and the Florence Gould Foundation. Okay, so uh, let's dig in. Um, I first would like to ask about your inaugural chapter, actually, uh, which is <laughs> provocatively titled uh, Analysis and an Analyst in the Global Economy or Why Anyone in Their Right Mind Would Pay for Analysis. I love that title. Mm-hmm. So um, <laughs> now I, I, I want to ask something very basic, actually, sure. um, which is, mm-hmm. um, well, okay, what is the goal of analysis or, um, yeah, in, in your view, and what role, if any, does money play? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> how, about, how, about, how about what is the goal? <laughs> what is the goal? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the ultimate goal. Yeah. The ultimate goal. Well, let me just first say that, um, you know, I wrote that paper for a specific conference on mm-hmm. uh, psychoanalysis in money in London a few years back. And it was a lot of fun to sort of take up the topic and, um, um, uh, because, you know, money was talked about uh, very uh, seriously, I guess, back in um, the early years of analysis, and it was always related to anality and so on. Um, mm-hmm. And um, I thought it could be more fun to talk about it in other ways um, and to relate it in particular to the notion of loss in psychoanalysis that um, uh, 
uh, that uh, money that you spend on an analysis, um, you know, it may seem at times like, you know, you're just throwing good money after bad and that, um, you know, what exactly is it that you're paying for? Um, and, uh, you know, uh, how different is it from paying, uh, I don't even know if they have 900 numbers anymore, but they used to where, you know, you would pay to be talked to dirty to or to talk dirty to somebody else. Um, what exactly are you paying for? And one way that I tried to formulate it is that you're paying for loss. You're paying actually to lose something. So on the sort of um, specious analogy with uh, working with a personal trainer with who you pay to lose pounds, um, uh, 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 you know, in, in a certain sense in psychoanalysis, we pay to lose something, something that we are loath to give up, to let go of. Um, it's usually, you know, characterized in Lacanian terms as a certain kind of a jouissance, a certain weird satisfaction, um, uh, even unpleasant satisfaction that we get from our symptoms um, and um, that we keep holding on to. Uh, in a mm-hmm. sense, it's the kind of uh, the enjoyment, uh, the paradoxical enjoyment that we're familiar with we know how to get um, it. Uh, it's familiar to us, um, and yet uh, that's often what we complain about when we first uh, go into analysis. That that's you know it's not the enjoyment that we want. We don't want to be satisfied from self pity or um, mm. moping or uh, depression or this or that, um, and so. Um, uh, I mean, of course, there are lots of ways of characterizing what the goal of psychoanalysis is, but one of them, at least the one that I tried to pick up on in that particular article, is the way in which um, uh, it is often so hard for us to let go of a certain uh, way of achieving satisfaction to hopefully move on to some other way of achieving satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I you know the, the, I, I like I like the way you explained it. Uh, can you relate it actually to the? This is I'm kind of skipping ahead or look, thinking ahead to some other papers, uh, chapters in the book, but mm-hmm. perhaps you can link it to the traversal of the fundamental fantasy, what what Lacan calls that, and or I, yeah, you translate it as the traversal. Some some mm-hmm. translate it as passing through the fantasy. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe you can begin by just explaining quickly to non-Lacanian listeners out there what is the fundamental fantasy and what does this have to do with the loss, this loss of jouissance that you just talked about? Right, right. Um, I mean, I think uh, even a lot of non-Lacanian schools um, uh, accept the notion that um, obviously we all have plenty of fantasies and that perhaps there's mm-hmm. one or a couple of dominant fantasies that are uh, organizing our psychic life for each of us. And um, uh, the idea in Lacanian psychoanalysis is that there is one sort of um, matrix or a fundamental fantasy around which perhaps hover a lot of other variations on that fundamental fantasy, and that that fundamental fantasy um, 
is very much at the crux of how we situate ourselves in life in relation to other people and uh, where our satisfaction and pain in life come from uh, when, as we try to situate ourselves in relationship to other people in a certain way, uh, which for many repeatedly doesn't work out, doesn't work mm. out very well, uh, works out for a little while and then completely collapses or backfires. Um, and um, so, you know, we can think of very roughly speaking the uh, of the fundamental fantasy when somebody comes into analysis complaining that, you know, their relationships always keep working out more or less in the same way um, that they get very intensely involved with somebody and then that person leaves them. Um, and um, so it seems that in a certain way they're playing out perhaps the same thing over and over again, which maybe, for example, in certain cases leads to a smothering of one's partner and, uh, you know, an attempt to control that partner such that the partner ultimately leaves. And so the question is, well, you know, what is it that the person is trying to achieve and why doesn't it work out? Um, and uh, how can we uncover what's holding that particular strategy um, in place such that some other outcome might be possible somewhere down the road? Mm -hmm. So the idea of traversing the fantasy is uh, to figure out what um, makes it so compelling to the individual uh, to, to play out a certain kind, to try to position him or herself in relationship to a partner in this very specific way. And, um, uh, and hopefully in the process of figuring out uh, what, um, what makes it so compelling, it's no longer so compelling. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that some other ways of situating oneself in relationship to a partner become possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, um, I, so when one passes through or one traverses uh, the fantasy, um, if that's one of the goals of analysis or, or, or the goal, uh, what happens to one's um, subjective position when that, when that fantasy is traversed? I'm curious about, just, like, does this obsessive ever become a hysteric, for example? Or, or, or and, you know, it, when the new form, when the fan, new fantasy takes on, or, uh, yeah, when the fantasy changes form, isn't there a danger that there would be new problems? So you're, you know, you, you, something else congeals, something else um, get, becomes rigid, and something else becomes compelling. And so I'm wondering if we ever really come to the end of analysis, you know, in this um, way, if this is the ultimate goal. Uh, can you speak to that? Uh, right, yeah. I suppose there, there certainly could be... Um, uh, um, uh, intermediate uh, points along the way, um, which are not really resolutions of the fundamental fantasy or really a traversing of it, but that are sort of partial moves in that direction. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yes, there's certainly no um, uh, moment at which somehow all fixation disappears or in another vocabulary, there's no longer any symptom, right? I think one of the things that um, 
Lacanian analysts perhaps um, uh, emphasize more than a lot of other uh, analysts is that there is always going to be a symptom of some kind. And the question is, how do you make do with your symptom? How do you live with your symptom? Um, is it something that paralyzes you? Um, and the idea is that the symptom undergoes a transformation, of course, in the course of uh, an analysis. And maybe, but as you indicated, for example, you you could be left with a different symptom. Uh, but uh, hopefully, it's a symptom that um, you can live with a lot better. Um, you know, we're all aware that certain kinds of symptoms allow one to get by better in the world than others do. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I think that's a part of your question that I've forgotten um, at this mm, point. Oh, uh, just subjective positions. Yeah. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, roughly speaking, regarding um, sub- subjective position, um, I think that, for example, where someone um, comes into analysis uh, fundamentally convinced that he has been a victim uh, of other people his whole life, mm. the hope is that, and he positions himself presumably in relationship to other people in such a way as to continually confirm and reconfirm that he's a victim. And so, you know, entering a certain workplace perhaps where there's no victimization of him at the outset, he perhaps somehow orchestrates it or brings it on, sees it when it isn't there necessarily, but perhaps even drives the people who could victimize him in such a way uh, that they begin to victimize him. Um, Mm -hmm. And the the hope is that at least that sort of thing ceases um, and uh, that he begins to see his own role in um, creating the kinds of relationships that that he has in life. And um, so there could be some sort of weird reversal where then suddenly he begins victimizing everybody else. But hopefully that's only a stopping point, Uh, not a stopping point, but rather a sort of, you know, um, Mm -hmm. a way station on the way to something else. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah, Yeah, you've been saying symptom a lot, and I was thinking actually, it just occurred to me that uh, you don't seem to at least overtly make a lot of use of Lacan's later writings in your, in, at least in, in the cases, like the 1970s uh-huh. Lacan specifically, the concept of the centum. Um, do you, I mean, yeah, is this something that you, uh, that you do think about? Um, and it just it hasn't, maybe it's not coming through as much in this, in these particular volumes? Um. No, I think that um, his later work informs my work uh, to some degree, but um, I would still say that, uh, you know, for myself personally and perhaps for many other people as well, the clinical, the direct clinical relevance of some of that later work is a bit less clear. And, for example, the notion of the symptom is... Uh, far more relevant, it seems to me, to psychosis and mm-hmm. perhaps, you know, what's come to be known as ordinary psychosis than it is to good old ordinary neurosis. And um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, the, um, uh, what I, you know, what I strive to do um, in this book in 
particular is to um, uh, talk about practice, talk about the theory of practice, um, and uh, you know, not dwell too much on the um, uh, really tough uh, later work, uh, which is very uh, theory laden. Um, and um, you know, uh, perhaps that'll be the, the, uh, the subject of future future <laughs> writings. But you know, there are a few people now who are starting to you know really try to uh, talk about more systematically Lacan's later work. But um, it remains extremely opaque. For example, um, you know, uh, I've sometimes been tempted to try to uh, translate texts like uh, Les Tourbies, right, mm-hmm. which came out around the same time as Seminar Twenty, and I mean, it's just. It's you know untranslatable. So no matter how many years of <laughs> oh, French no. I've had, yeah, well, it still <laughs> remains you know yeah. um, the clinic. And so to you know the theory is already so difficult, and the clinical applications of it are, um, for me at least, remain to be elucidated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well. Let's let's pivot then to something a little bit more uh, down to earth, which is uh, mm-hmm. actually in, in the next chapter offers that opportunity because it's uh, again nice title. Uh, what's so different about Lacan's approach to psychoanalysis? Um, so so one difference that is rather controversial and that mm-hmm. most most people know about is the uh, of course the variable length session. Mm-hmm. And um, well, okay, so I've heard two arguments actually against variable length sessions. From the inside, so to speak, that, that, that I'm kind of that I have to say I'm I'm sympathetic to, and then I've uh, sorry uh, from the from the inside of people who have uh, worked with Lacanian analysts, right? Or from, right. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Yes. And sure. uh, yeah. and also mm-hmm. like it, this, these are points that have occurred to me, and, and actually I'm um, I'll just I'll just be totally uh, uh you know upfront. So Slavoj mm-hmm. Zizek during a Q and A after mm-hmm. one of his. One of his talks uh, was asked mm-hmm. something about it, uh, about variable length sessions, or, or mm-hmm. he brought them up. I'm not mm-hmm. sure anymore. And by the way, this is all on YouTube, so um, it's not. I'm not giving anything away here. And there's right. nothing confidential. Okay, sure. okay. Sure. And he said that he's he's actually skeptical about them for two reasons. And the first, basically, is that um, well, when things are bad for the analysand, like uh, where he or she, when he or she needs. Um, needs the analyst more when they need consistency. In fact, Zizek, uh, again, was quite candid and talked about when he was in his 20s and in analysis with Jacqueline Miller, and he was like sort of suicidal. Uh, he would say to himself, I, you know, I will end it all now. But then, then he'd think, oh, wait a minute. I have an appointment with Miller tomorrow at four o'clock mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I'll have to see him first. Uh, so, so mm-hmm. point being that sometimes one simply needs that guarantee, that consistent presence. Uh, to be sure that the analyst will be there for a set time, especially when, like, you know, reality is disintegrating, when there's, in one's personal mm-hmm. life, or there's a revolution sure. even going on, or whatever, when, mm-hmm. you know, when the phantasmatic fabric is tearing, one needs to know you'll be there for the full 50 minutes, I guess, or the full 45 minutes, whatever it is. Okay. And the second argument um, is essentially that... Um, I'm sorry, I just would point out that, you yeah. know, at least from based on what you just said, though, the idea that the analyst will be there at 4 o'clock at the next day, it doesn't mean, you know, that it 
didn't sound like he was referring to how long the analysts would be there for. <laughs> and uh, of course, I think, you know, most Lacanian analysts have a very regular schedule as well. You know, mm. whether you see somebody three times a week or five times a week, you know, it's at regularly scheduled times, um, more or less. And um, uh, so you're there. The question is, you know, um, for how long? But anyway, well, I'll leave that aside. Yeah. Okay. Tell me yeah. Well, uh, this, the second point is actually I th- I find more compelling or more. Well, it, it's there. There are a few things. So, okay, how do you, you know, how do you know that a given association or or a slip or whatever is the is the most important in the session? So, I I know very well this phenomenon that you discuss when you. Uh, where you give this example a lot where, where you hit on something, you know, in a session surprising and powerful and then there are like 10 minutes left in the session, right? And then you're exhausted and scared and you don't spend the time talking about that, that pivotal, that, that surprising, powerful insight or, or not insight even, but just slip, whatever it was. Instead, you talk about what you did last night, your trouble with colleagues at work, some other uh, banality, okay? Um but but the question is, you know, but isn't this part of uh, free association, and why can't this potentially yield something interesting too? And Zizek pointed out that he needed he needed to BS before he could say anything worthwhile, or or worthwhile stuff emerges sometimes from the prosaic. Uh, um, and then and then this other point related to that is, you know, this is what interests me most. Um, so the point at which the analyst scans the session necessarily becomes the most important point retroactively. So how does one, how does one really know it was the right move? In other words, uh, you know, it always becomes a display of mastery. It it feels like, yeah. So maybe you can speak to those points yeah, as well. Right. Yeah, um, I mean, in my own experience, the um, the scansion doesn't necessarily become the most important point. And I hear repeatedly from analysts, and um, they say, "Well, I don't remember where the last session ended." Right. Okay, I figure at that point that just means I was barking up the wrong tree, or you know that uh, well, maybe it'll yield some fruit later down the road, but. Um, it didn't have much of an effect. Now, maybe, you know, there'll be a dream that will get recounted in the course of the session that turns out that it speaks somehow to where we ended the the prior session, but certainly not always. Um, I would say, no, there's, you know, there's no sense in which we know that this is the most important point. Um, I would say that it's, uh, you know, at best an educated guess based on everything you've heard from a patient and uh, from, you know, work uh, over the years with patients in general. And that hopefully, you know, a reversal um, of a point of view, um, somebody saying the exact opposite of what they meant to say, that that will bear fruit. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of times it doesn't. Um, but um, but it can, and sometimes it can be a very powerful tool. So um, mm-hmm. as, you know, once I so I would eschew the notion that it's a display of mastery in, in the sense, at least, that certainly um, the analyst doesn't know that it's going to have some sort of powerful effect. Oftentimes, it just falls flat. 
And, you know, the, the patient says to herself, um, well, I don't know what he was thinking, but, you know, <laughs> and, and that's fine. And sometimes, you know, um, that's just the way it goes, uh, that, you know, what the analyst thinks is very significant is not um, what the patient finds very uh, compelling. Uh, but that happens with interpretation. That happens with every kind of intervention one can make, right. not just not just the scansion of a session. Um, um, I've, you know, I've talked with lots of analysts who were convinced that they were absolutely right about what was going on, and yet it had no impact on their patient. And so I think then we have to rethink what we think is so right about it. And um, uh, So it's just the, another tool in the toolkit, in other words. That, and, that's that's yeah. the way I see it, yeah, mm-hmm. that it's not, it's certainly not the only toolkit. When it becomes, when people reduce sessions to the point where they last two or three minutes, as, you know, sometimes has happened in the worst of cases uh, in, uh, in France, then um, I think you're right, there's a certain display of mastery. There's obviously very little time, if, if any time whatsoever, for interpretation, for questions, for uh, interpretation of dreams, fantasies, and so on. And the scansion becomes the only act that the analyst seems to make then. Um, that, you know, that strikes me as absurd, personally. But, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so t- then to your, the, your comment about um, that, uh, you know, good things can grow out of the prosaic, uh, the question is, I guess, one of timing. You know, what I would prefer is that we not end with something prosaic because then mm. my sense is, and having been in analysis myself an awful lot, um, that you go away, you do go away. I mean, at least it seems, you know, psychological studies have shown that, you know, uh, the the unfinished task or the perplexing task uh, the un, um, is what, you know, keeps your mind working the most. And so if you go into prosaic uh, blah, blah, blah about everyday life at the end of the session, that's probably what's going to be on your mind then for the next half hour or, you know, possibly even the next day or two. Whereas, you know, if something sort of unsettled um, mm-hmm. uh, is where the session ends. Uh, that's likely what's uh, what's on your mind for the next period of time. Um, so the prosaic, you know, I think everybody deals with the prosaic early on in the sessions, and we try when the patient doesn't have a dream or something really important that they want to talk about, and they start talking about, you know, small conflicts in everyday life. We hope to sort of, you know, uh, dig deeper and, you know, or relate that somehow to something else they've been talking about so that uh, we leave the surface of things and we we move in um, in a direction that might have some more impact, um, but hopefully we end, at least in my view, hopefully we end with something impactful and, um, you know, even if we started with something prosaic, we don't end with something prosaic, <laughs> but, you know, that's... that's mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe a, a stylistic. Um, yeah, these are good arguments. I have to. I have to say. <laughs> um, okay, I, actually, also in this chapter, I uh, we're going fairly slow through the chapters, but I have to address oh, this. It's so good. Oh, uh, actually, if you, if I could ask you to hold that thought just for one mm-hmm. moment, I I did want to. Um, 
you know, uh, address the, maybe it's a misconception people have sometimes mm-hmm. about how Lacanians work, at least in my experience. You know, when, uh, when a Slavoj Zizek was um, uh, in crisis, it's very likely that his analyst asked him to come back a second time later that day. Mm. Or, you know, or, uh, and, you know, I happen to know Slavoj, so, um, <laughs> and I know a bit about his analysis as well. Um, you know, uh, his analysts saw a patient sometimes twice a day. And, uh, you know, and people who came in from out of town saw him three or four times a day. <laughs> um, and, um, when people are in crisis, there are um, lots of different approaches you can take. Some people, you know, they think that a certain frame whereby the patient comes in twice a week, come hell or high water, has got to be stuck to. Um, you know, I have never known anyone in the Lacanian world who practiced like that. Mm-hmm. And that when a patient is in crisis, you know, um, I try to see him as as much as seems necessary. And, you know, if it's already, you know, 8 o'clock at night and, you know, it's not clear that the worst is over, you know, I just let them know they can always call me later and we can talk and, you know, I'll see them the following morning or whatever. So there, it, it, you don't have to have necessarily a fixed 45 minutes um, <laughs> because it isn't necessarily the amount of time that's going to make the anxiety go away or that's going to sort of lead to some sort of talk that will uh, allay certain fears or uh, certain suicidal tendencies, but there's always at least the notion that um, uh, you're going to be talking again and you're going to be talking again very soon. Um, that's what I always personally found helpful, and I think that's what a lot of people find helpful. Mm. And you're unlinking time and money, I guess. You're not. You're not saying that this amount of money is worth X amount of minutes. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, um, you know, first of all, that's true in lots of professions where not everybody uses the, you know, the legal uh, the, the, the <laughs> practice among lawyers where, you know, an hour equals a thousand dollars, as I hear in New York anyway, you know, and so therefore each minute costs, I don't know. Uh, but, um, yeah. uh, you know, there are lots of professions in which money is not exactly equated with time. Um, but, uh, right. Yeah, you know, for some reason that's happened in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. So I, I'm I'm going I'm going to ask about Jvisans now, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> since we mentioned money again, and somehow right. last time we were talking. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, you, you say you explain in this chapter why Jvisans is more important than affect and, and feelings and analysis, according to Lacan and. Um, I guess, yeah. Do you think that there's an overemphasis on feelings during analytic sessions t- these days? And and what about, I guess, pain and suffering? Um, does acknowledgement of that or recognition of the analysand suffering have a therapeutic effect in your view during the session? Because if you, you know, you so just talk about this. Uh, you know, overemphasis on affect. Do you really do? You, do you stick by this today? Um, what does it mean to focus more on jouissance than affect, et cetera? Well, that's, again, a very big question. Um, <laughs> I think I mentioned perhaps the last time that I have, uh, I recently translated Colette Soler's book called Lacanian Affects, where mm. she talks about um, 
sort of the um, the way Lacan uh, does talk about affects, in particular right. anxiety, uh, sadness, mm-hmm. um, uh, and so on, and uh, how he formulates them um, uh, within his theory. Um, I think that um, uh, uh, how to say it? It's um, I think that where uh, where I would differ from a lot of people is with the notion that um, uh, it's only when affect appears in the course of a session that um, somehow you believe you're on the right track. Mm-hmm, and that yeah. you're talking about the right thing. And if the patient is not showing much affect, isn't angry or happy or crying, um, that somehow, you know, you haven't, you don't have real rapport with your analysis um, and, um, you know, you're not really working somehow. Um, and um, it's all... Again, uh, some of this seems to tie in with the notion of the corrective emotional experience that the analyst is there to somehow help um, uh, the analyst and come to feel differently and feel correctly or something um, uh, in a sort of process of a kind of reparenting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... Um, you know, Freud, uh, um, or in his very early work already in the interpretation of dreams, talked about how affect can be so um, misleading that uh, in a dream, for example, often the part of the dream that seems most affect-laden, uh, most intense, mm. is actually... Uh, when we start associating to it, it's not really the crux of the dream somehow, but another part. So there's been a kind of displacement or a metonymic slippage of the uh, affect, so to speak, from one part of the dream to another as partly a disguise, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so that, right, the dreamer won't recognize exactly what's going mm-hmm. on in the dream, wake up screaming or whatever the case may be. And um, also, I think Freud already indicated that that um, you know that uh, your analyzan may um, may cry or you know uh, become very uh, morbid at a certain point, and often it is uh, not necessarily because that's so painful uh, necessarily, but because there's something there that they don't want to talk about. And they may be very well aware of that. We haven't hit the real, so to speak. It's not as if every manifestation of affect in an analytic session or in life in a lover's dispute, for example, we're all aware that when someone, including perhaps ourselves, breaks down and starts crying, that doesn't mean that something, the mo- you know, the most painful thing has just been said. Sometimes it's just to get somebody else to stop. Right, to stay, you know, to stop bothering us, to um, to change the discourse, to uh, to to try to move on to something else. Um, you know, when you don't know how to um, handle somebody in a certain situation, if you cry. You know, um, yeah. I'm not saying we all do it in a totally calculated <laughs> manner, but um, uh, um, uh, so um, I 
think that, first of all, that's a kind of caution to realize that um, affect can sometimes be uh, misleading and, um, and that if we take it as our guide, um, uh, we're likely to be misled and to allow ourselves to be misled. Um, and when patients talk about things and they say, oh, that was the most painful experience in my life, Oh, often it you know it could be a screen memory. It could be that actually another incident related to it is actually the most painful, not that one. Um, and we have to be careful not to do what I think a lot of people do, which is say, "Oh yes, that must have been very hard for you. That must have been terrible," because also the same at the same time, the things that are presumably uh, that seem at least on the surface to be the most painful and the most difficult were also the most jouissif, as they say in French, right? the most bizarrely enjoyable or mm-hmm. satisfying somehow. And that's why I think if we pay attention to jouissance, um, I'm talking a mile a minute here, but you know, oh, the, the, mm-hmm. thinking about the rat man <laughs> case again, uh, mm-hmm. because I'm, I'm thinking of writing a, a, a book sort of uh, going through some of the work I've done teaching Freud for the last mm-hmm. 20 years. And in the rat man case, you know, Freud uh, notices uh, at this one point where the rat man is talking about this horrible torture that he had, a form of torture he'd been told about by a certain captain, uh, you know, this rat torture. And, uh, um, I won't go into the details. Um, uh, but uh, he said, you know, that he had this curious, uh, the rat man had this curious expression on his face, right? And uh, the way Freud described it was, of somehow an enjoyment or a satisfaction unbeknown to himself. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, sort of he was, you know, some people, and we'll, we can see this uh, sometimes even when people are on the couch, if we crane our necks a little bit, you know, that somebody is talking about something that's presumably horrible and there's a bit of a smile on their face. Or sometimes people, you know, talk about things that seem horrible and they're laughing. And not just to, you know, as a social, um, a uh, way of trying to, you know, mitigate uh, to the other person the the difficulty of something, but sometimes because there really is a certain enjoyment um, uh, there for them. So I think that if we um, uh, if we adopt the same logic of suspicion um, as I call it, that we, you know, that it seems to me we need to use in analysis in, in general, right? When the patient says, mm-hmm. you know. It's not that I mean to criticize <laughs> what you've been saying, yeah. but right, right. Uh, of course, we, sign. <laughs> right, yeah. right, we, yeah. and but the same thing, you know, that we we um, we take manifestations of affect in the same way. We we, we note them, of course. Uh, we don't ignore them. Uh, but uh, we need to be suspicious of, you know, what exactly is going on? What exactly does it mean? Maybe it, it could possibly mean the exact opposite of what it seems to mean. Um, right. right. Um, well, you, you mentioned in passing, and I don't know, I kind of, I'm afraid we're going to go down the rabbit hole with this one, but uh, <laughs> uh-huh. right. uh, you mentioned hitting the real. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was wondering if you could elaborate, because I, I think there's some confusion about what that entails, really. Right, you know, and right. it's, it does seem at moments like I sort of get it, but then what does it really mean in practice? You know, like right. so. Sure. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and when I used it when we were talking earlier, I meant it in a sort of conventional sense of perhaps, you know, like like we hit, you know, this thing that is truth of the subject somehow, right? The, mm-hmm. uh, that we, we really hit the heart of the matter. Um, and that, that affect somehow is the absolute truth. It's the holy grail. It's what we're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, so uh, that's just one thing I would caution against, you know, that affect is not necessarily mm-hmm. the Holy Grail. Uh, the Holy Grail is when we get to something and something seems to get shaken up or uh, sh- shaken loose um, and, and things are different after that for the patient. Even if there was no big show of affect during the session or even immediately thereafter, you know, the patient tells you uh, if you ask about it again a couple weeks later, oh, I don't do that anymore. (laughs) That's, to me, that's when we hit the real, right? In, In other words, we were talking about some incident from the past perhaps or some relationship to an important figure in the person's life. Things got said and that changed something. To me, that's, you know, you could, we can say um, you hit uh, the unconscious, right? You, you hit on something, uh, an unconscious wish, an unconscious thought. Um, uh, uh, we could also say somehow that um, uh, uh, another way of thinking about the real, obviously, in Lacanian terms is jouissance again, that the jouissance mm-hmm. is the real and that um, somehow we managed to say something which led to a transformation in the person's libido or the person's jouissance. Sometimes for people who are not that familiar with jouissance, just thinking of it as libido in a Freudian sense can be helpful perhaps. That I used to get, I used to really get off on X and now I don't. Right. And you give you give examples of this in your cases, uh, multiple examples of, you know, you and it usually involves bringing something to speech for the analysand, right? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so, you know, to me, it's the quantity of affect that comes out at any particular moment. That's not what's crucial. What's crucial is does something change? And um, mm. and in my own experience, what leads to um, uh, the big changes, they may it, it may be a discussion that's um, uh, accompanied by a lot of affect, but I mean it, it isn't always. And in fact, probably the majority of the time, um, my sense is that it isn't. But it leads to you know a big change, uh, an effective change, a um, uh, change in uh, subject position, a change in, uh, you know, jouissance, um, and, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. So we've talked, we've talked a lot about jouissance, now it's time to talk about desire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I've decided. So in ethics of, uh, the next chapter is ethics of psychoanalysis, and, um, you know, so Lacan has this point to make that in, in basically ensuring the analysand's goodness or that the analysand serves the good is not the aim of analysis. And in fact, we should be suspicious of this, right? And instead, Lacan elevates uh, to an ethical stance, um, sort of, um, well, like a statement, one should not give up on one's desire, or I've heard it, 
or I've seen mm-hmm. it translated more often as not give way on one's desire, which sounds a bit right. confusing. But um, so, so this actually, this almost gives me the chills when I every time I read that, and I think it's 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 so inspiring, but it's it scares me a little. You know, it's it feels to me. I mean, what does that really look like? I suppose not to give not to give uh, way on one's desire. Um, it occurs to me that that not giving way is could be quite destructive, actually. Right. So, right. I mean, um, as I always try to say, you know, we're not talking about you know the first desire the patient shows up with in analysis, which is you know world domination, <laughs> or you know to sort of make everybody in their entourage suffer for all the ills they have done to them. Um, but uh, just to give a couple of examples, yeah. you know, the. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, one of my patients at a certain moment, um, uh, not even just at a certain moment, but for many years was in love with a woman and, um, you know, never declared his desire for her. And, um, and uh, with a thousand excuses of why the time was never right and, you know, the circumstances were never the right ones. Um, and uh, I think what Lacan, with this ethical imperative, is saying um, the worst aspects of neurosis have to do with giving up on your desire. And uh, let me just uh, return it to Freud for a moment. Mm-hmm. There's something that Lacan points out in Freud's work uh, is this particular word, versagen. I, I, I don't know German, so I, I can't pronounce it very well, but I've looked into the word and I've looked mm-hmm. at it in a number of contexts, and it's always translated in the standard edition as frustration. And uh, the uh, frustration has become a sort of a big term, as far as I know, in uh, Anglo-American psychoanalysis. And what actually, um, if you look closely at the German, what Freud is talking about uh, very often is renunciation, that the analyzant gives up on what she wants. She wants something, and instead of pursuing it, she lets it go. And that this kind of compromise, this um, uh, willingness to uh, let go of what we most want is, uh, you know, a big component of neurosis Um, and um, leading to regrets, leading to, um, uh, what's the word in English? uh, resentment against all those for whom we say to ourselves that right. we made that renunciation, right? We gave this person up or we gave this particular thing. Uh, it could be a career choice. You know, there are lots of people who I've worked with who said, you know, that they really wanted to do X. They really wanted to study music. And their parents said, you'll never make it as a musician. And, you know, instead they studied, you know, some science that they didn't really love. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and then at age 40 or 50, you know, they have a breakdown and, uh, or, you know, what's typically referred to as a midlife crisis. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, maybe they're even successful in this career, but they hate it. And, you know, uh, um, so um, I think, uh, 
you know, there's sort of a very straightforward or simplistic reading of don't give up on your desire, as I, I, I like that one better than don't give ground relative to you. That sounds very <laughs> stilted to me. Don't give up on your desire. Um, uh, there's a sort of a simplistic reading, and there's perhaps a more profound one. There's one that, you know, uh, simplistically stated, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, you're going to regret it if you give up on your desire. <laughs> and uh, there's a more profound one that um, uh, um, uh, that we all need desire to live. Uh, you know, that somehow it's the essence of ourselves is our desire and what we want. And um, uh, it doesn't mean that we have to, you know, move heaven and earth uh, at every moment to try to get it, but that uh, especially we have to stop, you know, trying to believe our own excuses about why we're not pursuing what we want um, and, um, you know, try to remove some of the obstacles uh, that we place in our own way to achieving what we want. Um, mm-hmm. So, how, is, how does this, yeah, how does this relate to love, actually? Um, because, or Lacan's formulation of, well, it comes up in, in volume one as well, um, where I think you suggest, you know, or you repeat something Lacan says that uh, giving, you know, love is giving someone lack or, or loving from a place of lack. Mm-hmm. And that that means uh, stimulating or or driving the other's desire, or at least I understand it that way at times. I don't know if you, I don't want to totally misattribute, but um, I mean, is that accurate actually? Is Is that what love is uh or is there more um in lacanian you know vocabulary or is there more to it is i guess i guess also a connected question for me is um is 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 love necessarily cuz love sounds very hysterical it sounds like hysterical love is the only love possible in a way if you you know formulate it in the way that i just have but i could be totally wrong so set me straight um <laughs> uh yeah, I mean, love and desire is, um, uh, you know, the two uh, are related, uh, and they're not always related. Um, <laughs> I've just finished a book that uh, will hopefully come out uh, in the fall called The Love is Giving What You Don't Have, right? And that's mm-hmm. a reading of uh, Lacan's uh, long discussion of love in uh, Seminar 8, the uh, transference seminar. Um, and, um, you know, I try to trace, uh, the, uh, the way Freud, um, uh, talks about the divergence, the divergent paths often between love and desire, especially in men, but also in women at times as well. Um, Lacan, uh, sometimes in his formulations plays a little fast and loose with, um, the distinct, as he often does with distinctions between, let's say, love and desire. But that formulation, and, and of course, uh, Lacan, uh, like Freud, has a lot to say about love and desire in the course of his, you know, 50 plus years of writing. Um, and so I try to focus at least with that claim, love is uh, giving what you don't have, on a particular formulation that's around, you know, the uh, early 60s in uh, in his work, uh, repeated sometimes later, sometimes a little bit earlier. Um, and the idea there is that um, 
you have to show and indicate very clearly and enunciate to another person that you lack, that you need something, mm. that you're missing something. Uh, you have to um, indicate that you are castrated, so to speak, to another person, right? That you don't mm. have what you want, that you um, are lacking in a, in a certain regard, and that that other person is somehow related to that lack. Not, the, not that that other person fills that lack, but mm. somehow that other person brings out the lack in you, brings out the desire in you, mm-hmm. um, and um, mm-hmm. perhaps in what you were referring to as a kind of hysterical vein, the hope is that if I declare my lack to you, then that will bring out the lack in you, and you'll mm-hmm. declare your lack to me. Mm-hmm. And well, that doesn't always happen, but you know <laughs> that... Uh, um, uh, so, um, mm-hmm. is that what you were thinking of? Yes, that's of, that's yes, exactly yes, right. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, well, okay, we're we're running out of time, but I I, I wanted to, yeah, I, this, usual, this, this right, happened right. last time too. Yeah, I wanted right. <laughs> I wanted to ask about uh, the cases a little bit and get to those. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed something. Uh, about them, which is, Uh-oh. yeah, well, it's rather, it became rather obvious to me, I, you know, they're all men, okay, let me just lay it out, I'm just going to say, right, sure. uh, they, it's a narrow demographic, you know, mm-hmm. um, and uh, they, they tend to have money to trust funds, I mean, not all of them, actually, but a good number of them, I noticed, and then, and I guess most of them are obsessives, um, which is not too surprising, I suppose, mm-hmm. either. but, right. uh, well, I'm actually okay. So, is this a conscious choice? Uh, did, did you did you decide? I mean, how did you select? I guess the cases uh, for these two volumes. Right. I, I mostly selected what was already written up. Um, there is the case of um, Tina in uh, oh. the other volume, mm-hmm. and. Um, in the uh, the the first essay here about the global economy, um, there is a case. There's a, a female analyst as well. But um, you know, one of the difficulties is with ongoing cases. Um, you know, I just leave them out of uh, publications. You know that they they can't, I, I feel they can't be included at this stage, mm-hmm. and um, so. Uh, as you can see, this is a um, a set of uh, uh, of cases that I discussed over the years in certain places, and there were other cases that I couldn't present um, often because of people being in the audience who I might have wanted to present. So yes, there, there's a certain skewedness to it there. Um, but um, uh, I would just say that because of you know when and where I made these presentations and what's still ongoing and what isn't, uh, that's how the selection happened. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's okay. The fact that they're all obsessive, or not all of them, a majority of them, is just a kind of where the chips fell, as it were. Well. Well, one of them, uh, you know, I would definitely uh, say that the, um, I think it's the last one, Contours of Trauma, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, is much more an hysteric male, and, you know, and some people and have told me, you know, they're sure, no, he's a masochist. So, uh, and also don't forget in the, um, in the first volume, there's the fetishist. So there, you know, there's a little more. And, and of course the case of, uh, Tina is a case of psychosis. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I forgot about Tina. That's true. Yeah. And that is, um, 
uh, again, you know, cases of psychosis are ones where, you know, the um, publication is perhaps even trickier. <laughs> so, um, mm-hmm. yeah. You know, speaking of the, the case, uh, the Contours of Trauma case, um, you're now in there. He's he's a gay man who's into S and M, and you you explain that he's um, at first it's just online and then offline, and eventually it takes this contractual form at first, mm-hmm. where the parties agree in advance. You know what's going to happen, their safe words, and all that. And you say this sort of thing is is mainstream, and you the stuff of you know whatever like capitalism, semblance, etc. But then things get more serious, and um, I guess he seems. Well, he seems to be treading on dangerous territory, though you don't totally, you don't really spell it out what's going on. But uh-huh. you, um, you, you fear for him, and so you give him an ultimatum to stop engaging in his, these practices, or you'll and or and the uh-huh. analysis, right? And I, I was actually surprised that uh, about uh, this move, only because you know, given Lacan's ethics and your own about normativity and analysis, or like sort of the pitfalls of like projecting your own values onto the analysand and. So I, it seemed pretty heavy-handed, and I thought, wow, something must have really... Um, well, I thought maybe, can you comment a little bit on that, and uh, maybe you can talk about the decision with this man, or just more generally about such interventions, the place of such interventions and analysis? Yeah, there was certainly, you, you sense there, and you're right, that you know there was um, something that had... Um, uh, definitely concerned me for a long time that I was hesitant to uh, make any such um, uh, uh, demand uh, about. And um, it seems to me, however, that when something becomes life-threatening, uh, it threatens the analysis, right? Um, mm. In this case, I think we were uh, talking in particular about suffocation, mm. and um, you know, because you know, it, it sort of becoming a bit more and more extreme as time went on, and I began to feel uh, rather anxious about the whole thing, um, uh, which is rare for me. Um, uh, and um, I began to wonder if, in fact, you know, I wasn't the one uh, in whom he was hoping to generate the anxiety. Um, right, right. And uh, so it seems to me that, um, and, I, and in the end, I've I've done this a number of times, not exactly in the same circumstances. Sometimes it's with drugs, sometimes with other things, um, but where the the patient's life is um, at stake. Um, it seems to me that we do have to take a stand. And as I said, one of the difficulties, as I said in that case, uh, one of the difficulties is we have to feel that uh, we have enough leverage that um, the importance of the analysis is great enough that the jouissance of this kind of, that they derive from this kind of behavior uh, can be sacrificed or will be sacrificed mm. by the patient. And um, and two, it's a card you can only play once, <laughs> right? If you say that, you know, I'm not willing to continue the analysis yeah. unless you mm. stop, uh, then you can't really backpedal uh, after that. And um, so, uh, but... Um, uh, you know, it does seem to me that, uh, you know, from a Lacanian perspective, from a Freudian perspective, we uh, we do uh, a 
ally, so to speak, with the wife drives against the death drive, right? Insofar as we associate the death drive with repetition compulsion, Mm -hmm. we do try to work against that, usually uh, simply verbally, not by making any uh, demands, right? Like, you know, give it up or else. Mm -hmm. but uh, you know, sometimes uh, the um, the patient's behavior outruns our ability to um, to let's say interpret it such that um, we can sufficiently interpret it so that the patient won't kill himself uh, before he kills himself. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so there's a, there's a time element that comes into play here. And, um, uh, but it, certainly it's not something that I recommend in general. It's when, uh, I was at my wit's end, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and, uh, yeah, um, the, the, I recall it was a rather, uh, trying moment when I gave this presentation because there are various people in the audience said, oh, well, why don't you just send him to, you know, S&M uh, uh, groups, you know, um, uh, and, you know, let him have a good time. I said, well, the problem was he wasn't having a good time. He was no. pretty close to killing himself. You know, um, it seems to me that, uh, you know, the sort of non-clinical um, response to this sort of thing uh, doesn't take seriously the um, the way in which, uh, you know, something very important could be at stake. And it could be a kind of acting out again. Um, uh, in other words, it could have been something that was being done uh, essentially in order to have a certain effect on me standing in for, you know, parental figures who he felt didn't rescue him. Um, didn't, right, you're uh, setting a limit, yeah. And, um, uh, and, but still the hope would be normally that if the patient is acting out, that uh, certain interpretations would be enough to put a stop to that. But if you can't find the interpretations required to uh, put a stop to it before it's too late, then um, it doesn't uh, do much good to insist upon interpreting only. Um, and so, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And I should say that, yeah, just um, because I don't, I don't know if you mentioned it in our conversation just now, but uh, in the in the case, it seems like he did stop. It worked. Yeah, and yeah. It, it worked. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, on that more positive note, uh, before we go, can you just uh, can you just say a few words, maybe, about what you're working on now? Because I, I, you know, you mentioned the love book. I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to. Maybe there's right, other stuff too. <laughs> yes. Well, um, uh, the three main projects. Uh, the love book is is done now, and it's a sort of a long commentary on. Um, uh, Freud and Lacan on love, and in particular uh, Lacan's uh, detailed exploration of uh, Plato's Symposium in Seminar 8, mm-hmm. uh, which I've just translated, and that'll be out uh, by the same press, Polity Press, uh, I think in August. Um, and then my commentary on it will come out sometime a few weeks later. And then... Um, I'm toying with the idea, I don't know if it'll happen, but I'm toying with the idea of uh, sort of taking uh, the work that I've done on Freud the last 20 years in teaching at Duquesne University and turning that into a book. And and particularly, not just, you know, another book on Freud, because there are millions of them, but maybe something, you know, with 
talking about the enduring clinical relevance of Freud's work. Mm -hmm. And um, so not going into, you know, all kinds of theoretical details, but um, uh, talking about clinical uh, things. And then I'm hoping to translate another seminar. Uh, it's uh, Seminar 16, um, de notre à l'autre, mm. from one other to the other, uh, which is, you know, getting closer to the later work. Mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, Keep those seminars coming. I'm, re I'm, right. I'm relying on your that's translations here. Well, at least we're, we're lucky now that, you know, several of them are in the works and we, mm -hmm. you know, there is a press now that uh, is uh, really working actively to bring them out. So um, that's, great. That's, that's good news, yeah. All right, Bruce. Well, maybe you can come back at some point. You know, the love book. We could talk about love for the full fifty minutes. Okay. I would love to. And uh, your questions. I put you always, on the spot. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, the questions are always uh, thought provoking, and uh, there's always way too much to address. But, uh, I certainly have enjoyed talking with you. Me too. Thanks. Thanks for doing this twice, and. Uh, and uh, thanks to our audience for listening. Uh, Happy New Year. And uh, till next time, bye-bye.